Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hi, hello, hello. I hope you're doing well. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz, and it's so nice to have you here today. We're joined today by my friend Isaias Hernandez, the creator of Queer Brown Vegan. Isaias is an environmental educator. He's the creator of Queer Brown Vegan, like I said, an eco-influencer extraordinaire. And Queer Brown Vegan is a space where he creates informative, introductory forms of environmentalism through graphics, illustrations, videos, TikToks. He seeks to provide a safe space for like-minded environmentalists to advance the discourse around the climate crisis. Isaias Hernandez was my personal first introduction to what it means to be a truly intersectional environmentalist. He's really unapologetic about all of the different facets of his personality and manages to discuss topics like zero waste, environmental justice, environmental racism, all within the context of not only his own experiences, but in a very informative, unbiased way. He just does what he does so well and an excellent resource for anyone interested in environmental education and learning a little bit more in these bite-sized content formats that he is so good at creating and providing on a super, super regular basis. I just mentioned Isaiah has become one of my good friends, especially in the last year. He is a content creator that I look up to very, very much, and we've really connected on a lot of different levels. We have a lot of clubhouses lately, which we're enjoying so much. If you're not on Clubhouse, it's like this audio-only platform. It's essentially like listening into a live podcast, but they're club rooms where you could raise your hand and anyone in the audience can interact, and I am loving them so far, and Isaiah is being super active on the app as well. And we've had a lot of great conversations there. But anyway, Isaiah and I have connected previously. He's really become a mentor sort of figure for me. Mentor sounds very formal, but he's really helped me come into my own when it comes to content creation and establishing myself in this space and kind of establishing value. I think that's something that I've struggled with a lot, saying that while I do love to provide this content, I need to get paid. And Isaiah has kind of helped me figure out what it means to value content creators. And we do get into that in this episode. What does it mean to be an environmental educator? What does it mean to put a price on your passions and your passion projects? And that's quite important. And we also get into these heavier topics that Isaiah is so good, like I mentioned, at educating the public on. We talk about environmental racism. We talk about his upbringing and his understanding of environmentalism and what that kind of interaction with nature meant for him growing up and how he grew into it throughout his professional career and throughout his education. We talk about education, we talk about academia and why we have mixed feelings on it, though we both really enjoy it. 
and it was a wonderfully personal episode. I think we talk about a lot of big picture educational topics, and like I said, Isaiah is so eloquent. He's so well-versed and educated, and he knows how to educate people, which I think is a very, very important and undervalued skill. Anyone can be an environmental educator, but it takes a lot of practice and a lot of time to be an expert in the space like he is. So I have so much respect for him. I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled that he joined me. I hope to have him back again. Like I said, you should totally pop into our clubhouses. We're enjoying them so much. I will leave my info down below if you want to follow along, get in touch, etc. And then I've been announcing any upcoming scheduled rooms that I schedule and I'm not just like popping in for fun on. I have been announcing them on Instagram and my Instagram is at Podcast, and all of my details are down below if you want to get in touch. I've been thinking a lot about content and what I want to create and how I want to continue to be a better environmental educator for you, for this audience, and for any of your friends and family that you're sending these episodes to. And a lot of that content is going to live on social media. I'm working on a website and I want to know what kinds of content you like to consume. Are you a reader? Are you more auditory? Do you need more episodes? Are you someone who really likes the videos? Are they short videos? Are they long videos? So if you have any feedback on how I can be better for you, I would really like to get in touch. The easiest way is probably through DM on Instagram, like I said, at Podcast. but my email is also always in the show notes. And I'm also on Facebook and, oh, I'm on Twitter. Anywhere you want to find me, I'm there. And like I said, everything's in the show notes below. So with that, I really hope you enjoy today's episode with Isaiah Hernandez of Queer Brown Vegan. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Quick, before we get into the episode, let me ask you something. How did you sleep last night? Because I slept like a baby, like an infant, so well because I was sleeping in my attitude sheets. I've shared before my TMI points that I am a hot sleeper, and I am someone who is really actively looking for something to help me thermoregulate at night, something that's not going to keep me too hot or too cold, something that's going to help me not wake up in the middle of the night in sweats, quite frankly. And that's when I found attitude. I love Etitude Sheets because they are clean bamboo. They have this revolutionary bamboo bedding technology. It's good for you and it's good for the planet. Etitude Sheets are feathery soft and honestly super beautiful. They look like really nice high quality silk. Silk can be super expensive, however, and Etitude Sheets are a fraction of the price because they are vegan silk, like we said, made from bamboo. And in fact, let me tell you something, I got a set of Etitude Sheets for a couple of friends who got married. They got married during quarantine and I couldn't be physically at their micro wedding, but I wanted to send them something nice and I thought Etitude Sheets, some silky soft sheet sets for their new life together would be an excellent choice because like I said, they don't break the bank, but they are so luxurious and there is nothing better than a good night's sleep. Seriously, I can't recommend it more. So if you've heard me talk about Etitude before and you're thinking about it, I'm telling you this is the sign that you needed. Why not try Etitude? Their amazing sheets have a 30-day risk-free trial and they even cover shipping on returns. But honestly, you're not going to need the returns because you're going to love them that much. Etitude. Soft as silk, breathable as linen, but at the price of cotton. You're going to love them. When you support our sponsors, you support our show. And right now, my listeners will get 15% off their sheet set and free shipping. 
Just enter code ECO15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. The only way to get that 15% off your Etitude sheets and free shipping is to enter code ECO15 at checkout. That's ECO, E-C-O-1-5 at checkout for 15% off your Etitude order. Now back to the episode. Isaiah, welcome to Eco Chic. Thank you so much for being here. I am I'm thrilled to have you today. Yeah, you know, me too. I'm so honored to even be on Eco Chic. So I'm really privileged to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I love your platform. I feel like I gush to you all the time because I really do love everything you put out and everything you create. And you have really created such a special niche for yourself as queer brown vegan. So I would love for you to take me way, way back. Tell me about growing up and how you kind of formed this relationship with your very intersectional identity as an environmental advocate. Yeah, definitely. I, so I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and my, my parents had immigrated um, from Mexico in the 1980s. And so when we were growing up in the 90s, they lived in affordable housing throughout my whole life and generally in affordable homes in Los Angeles, you are destined or designed uh, by the system to live nearby certain uh, toxic facilities or generally they are just located by a lot of pollutant aspects in the environment. And I remember having so many questions growing up of like why my community was designed this way, why so many people had health issues, why I wasn't even allowed to go outside to play. And I remember um, my mom just saying like, the environment's bad here, it's not the best. And I was like, what do you mean it's bad? Like I can see people walking down the streets, like I'm pretty sure it's fine. And so that was kind of questions that I had that I didn't really understand at a young age. And when I entered uh, elementary school and like middle school, high school, I was exposed to all this like terminology of like conservation, climate change, uh, global warming, but it was often presented as, this, as if it was something that was happening in different countries and not in the United States. And so that's why I was so confused why my community was designed this way and why no one really interconnected it to people's identities, people's communities. And I was very afraid when I was going to a lot of environmental events as a younger middle school or high school or attending these after school programs or even uh, summer programs. And I remember I was the only like person of color sometimes. And it was very concerning because I felt like None of the students that I was with or around in those programs uh, never had the same lived experiences as me. We're very focused on conservation, grew up near the beach areas, did witness plastic pollution, but didn't really, for them, uh, really talk about environmental justice. And I think it was until high school when I realized what I wanted to do as an environmental scientist, because I thought that was the only way to become a really good environmentalist in this field. And... I did it and I applied, I got into Berkeley and I went through four-year program undergrad to do environmental science. And I realized how elitist academia is and how, um, you know, it lacks diversity. It's really rooted in Western philosophy, Western ideals. And so it doesn't really always critically um, challenge you to rethink the ways of how systems and how our ecological crisis is rooted in white supremacy. And so I I think for me, that was one of the biggest issues I had in academic sciences is that I took so much heavy science courses and uh, very few social courses. And for me, when I learned about more environmental racism, justice, that when it really clicked to me that this language was very inaccessible for so many people who are just trying to understand the basic introductory forms of environmentalism. And so I kind of really challenged ideas and like very reference that many environmentalists have uh, talked about this is that environmental education should be rooted in personal lived experiences, 
cultural experiences and indigenous wisdom and knowledge. And so I think that holistically academia wasn't really the space for me to talk about these things that I created a career about begin two years later, post-grad, realizing that I wanted to put information out there because I realized that no one should have to pay thousands of dollars to attend elite universities or any type of environmental program to learn about these terminologies that should be open and public and people that should be a human right for everyone to learn about environmental education. Incredible. I have to say, I love your story so much. I think academia as a ivory tower gatekeeping type entity has become more and more prevalent in the last few years. And I have to say, I'm someone who has always really identified myself with my academic achievements. Like I'm someone who loves school. I'm someone who, like, I always assumed I'd be in academia. And as soon as I graduated from graduate school, I realized that, or not even as soon as I graduated, while I was in graduate school, I created this podcast and it was something that was very polarizing in my department. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, but I had older white men like come up to me when I started my show and they were like, you can't be doing this. Like you can't, this is embarrassing. Like you can't be representing yourself this way. No one's going to take you seriously. And it was such a strange conversation because climate education, environmental science, environmental terminology has to resonate with people. And at the end of the day, I say this all the time, but like people don't have those experiences with the environmental world immediately around them. They're not going to care about environmental action and they can't care about climate change because they assume that it's happening somewhere else and they assume that it's not happening in their neighborhoods. So I love your stance of making sure that environmental science and this terminology is not elitist. I think it's probably the most harmful thing we can do is gatekeep science. Definitely. I I totally understand. And I totally agree with that because I think that only those who enter the environmental field are generally exposed to conservation. The projects that generally get the most funding for research is science-based conservation uh, environmental organizations compared to environmental justice, where it's more controversial, where um, social um, justice and these topics are not really scalable for scientists. It's not really applicable. And so it's really rooted in this idea that academia was never really designed to really liberate people, but rather to oppress those and to silo those that have these different types of ideologies and values Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think also when we talk about Western ideas, it's interesting when we talk about your background growing up with an immigrant family and like what that conservation looked like to you growing up versus the other children in these conservation groups that you were participating in. And when we talk about, I don't want to call it, I guess it is, it's the immigrant identity and this concept of like really valuing natural resources that's not always prevalent in western media yeah I, th- I think for me one of the biggest notices that i realized that when attending these different types of programs that were i was unable to get scholarships for is the fact that the idea of sustainability for me was rooted in like conservation of financial resources and this looked into like myself not really being able to go out with them to get food It was more like, I'll just eat what they have there because I don't have that much money. Or I would even feel so ashamed to ask my parents for $20. Like that's something that I felt growing up. Like I should never even ask for $10, maybe like two if it was a good week. And I remember for me, like 
a lot of the practice, my parents came from farmlands. And so they had experiences doing agricultural work. And my grandpa realized that he was part of the Bracero program when he went. And so my mom had always told me these stories about like, he had to go there to America to help and, you know, plant things and all these other things. And so it made me realize like, you know, my roots to agriculture, even though I didn't have access to land or soil here, I do think I had like a connection to the soil because I, I personally think that when I grew plants, they always grow, they never really die, they, they're always blooming. And so I think that for me, you know, really hearing those cultural stories allowed me to really validate my own experiences, but also understanding that they will never be the same experiences than my other counterparts that I experienced, rather than going to all these national parks and these experiences and access to other resources due to their economic status it kind of made me realize like it's not about being left out, but rather to understand that you are your own environmentalist and that doesn't have to look the same for everyone. And I think that reflected in college when I would speak about these things in courses and seeing other counterparts be uncomfortable with these types of conversations and knowing that this is something that is going to change. And I'm not here to really tell people to be comfortable. Meanwhile, communities are being poisoned and we need to address these issues. Right. I think it's fascinating also that you had such an awareness of environmental racism. And when we talk about pollutants in the water and how housing is developed around these really toxic environments. I mean, it's really incredible that you had such an, an immediate awareness of it, because I think that the first time I heard about like proper city structured environmental racism I couldn't believe it I like I really didn't think that there would be housing near dump sites or like some sort of nuclear plant nearby and there was housing immediately next door and I I just couldn't believe it and then I think I also heard these stories of like the Superfund sites of the 70s like Love Canal that you hear about as you know, as, as a once in a lifetime type experience. And it was an accident that'll never happen again. And these, it was because it was poorly regulated and the EPA wasn't developed enough yet to think about these communities. And, and that's not true. Like Superfund sites still very much exist. We just got a little bit of justice this week for Flint, Michigan. But mm-hmm. I think that there's this perhaps disconnect that these environmental racism, structural type community developments are a thing of the past and like people don't think that they happen now. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And I think this comes to the idea of people not really understanding the concept of environmental racism because that has long-term detrimental effects for those who are currently existing in those groups, those who have lost community members that has contributed to religious, cultural and spiritual practices by them no longer existing in these spaces and also the fact that colonization and colonialism and white supremacy itself is not something in the past. It permeates in different types of spectrums. And so I tell people when we talk about these concepts, it's not the idea of a, us seeing this you know, white supremacist harming directly people, but it's people in power who are designing these systems that to allow these development projects to continue harming people. And so if we're not able to really advocate for a healthy planet, or those who preach about loving earth and loving people while staying silent on social, racial, and environmental injustices. And that's an issue for me because I think that they're able to really opt out of these conversations without really critically thinking that their own rhetoric is actually harming others. 
Absolutely. And that rhetoric of injustice being necessary for development, I think, is also really harmful. Thinking about these injustices upon upon communities, entire groups of people that you are disregarding in order to continue developing your society, quite frankly. Yeah. So I think that it's it's just like this really harmful cycle of like, that's just the way it has to be, or that's just the way it's always been. And it turns into this kind of almost victim blaming of, you know, it's just, I think environmental racism has a lot of layers to unpack from the oppressor's perspective too, and educating those people and inviting them in to say, look at what you're doing. And it's in your court to fix the mm -hmm. problems that you're putting onto these people. Yeah, I, I think too, the, the idea of accountability for just general folks who may have not been exposed to this terminology is the fact that when presented this information, rather than internalizedly uh, seeing as an issue within themselves or when talking about white supremacy, this uncomfortable truth, I think that it's important for those that wanna really make change within themselves, even if they're not in a governmental position, to talk about these issues and to really put them at the forefront because many professors till this day in academia don't believe in environmental racism. They don't really see the importance or the value of environmental justice. And that is something that is a really huge red flag for academia is that these students go in talking about trying to save the environment and the planet and the people, but when they get to a low income BIPOC community, they have no cultural connection to them. They have no historical context of what has economically um, suppressed this community and socially and racially oppressed this community, that this is why the EPA continues to fail is that these people are not empowered. They're not really prepared to address these things. And this is why we see such huge disconnections when we see the EPA really not re failing to serve these communities. And we see other EJ orgs arising and taking accountability for their own hands because they realize that EPA won't really help. And this is why the idea of institutional versus community, I think community is much more stronger than institutional powers at the end of the day. I could not agree more. And I really like the phrasing you used of failing to take accountability. And something that I'd like to switch gears a little bit, but harping on that terminology is something that I love so much about your platform is that you unpack some big conversations in a small amount of time in a couple of slides. You do incredible work educating people in these very bite sized snapshots for themselves. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what accountability looks like to your audience and what do you feel are some of the topics that have really resonated with people in the last year or so? Yeah, I think when it comes to accountability, I think the idea of just, you know, things that I've always been preaching about is interconnections. And so addressing how environmentalism itself has to be actively anti-racist. And so for those who don't really understand anti-racism or how white supremacy, anti-racism, environmentalism interconnect, is that accountability looks at looking at yourself within this process called unlearning, which is sometimes portrayed as a beautiful process, but it's a horrible, ugly process that you have to look within yourself and ask yourself, like, what are some of the internal biases that I carry that I have been perpetuating or harming people directly or upholding? And so I think that what needs to happen with accountability is the fact that 
organizations and institutions themselves must address the role of white supremacy and its effects that it's had on communities, its own organization members and its own work. And two, that there's an active power of redistribution because what we're seeing in the environmental movement, even whether we talk institutional, local or the lifestyle of social media, is that the people generally in power are generally white folks. And so it's not to say that every white folks is evil, but it's to say the fact that if we want a very inclusive form of environmentalism, we need to actually portray what it really is and to display those types of people, um, BIPOCs in those types of powers. And three is the fact that they need to really address anti-racism because I think this is a huge issue in the environmental movement, especially when it comes to veganism, is that people don't want to have these conversations and sort of kind of find it a way to blame it in a different sector of like, it's a global issue, that's not my responsibility. And so just the fact that people opt out of these conversations shows to me that their proximity or their ability to opt out of these conversations is rooted in privilege, is rooted in their skin tone, is rooted in their ability to navigate this world and how they're presented, because that's something that I realized that environmental movement has definitely had issues with. I'm so fascinated by a lot of the things you said. Something that I want to talk about that I've been seeing a lot of conversation around this week is white veganism, because I think that the topic of white veganism while it needs to be more of a mainstream conversation, for some reason, veganism is very often portrayed as something that can only operate in one identity, perhaps in this identity of, you know, animal compassion and wanting to act on behalf of animals. So I want to talk to you about white veganism. What is it? What's the problem with it? Yeah, definitely. I think with white veganism, a really great start for people just like feeling offended by that term is to look into white feminism, because white feminist feminism is something that has already been talked about. But I think white feminism itself does a really horrible job to erase trans women, non-binary folks. It's not very inclusive to a lot of marginalized um, women, trans, non-binary folks, femmes. And so I think that with white veganism, it looks into the fact that um, animal liberation is the only thing that matters, and it does not really see the interconnections between human and animal oppression. Not to say that those are the same, but they're interconnected in forms of oppression. And so I think that white veganism does a good job in portraying the role of human supremacy, saying that all humans, regardless of race, are contributing to the exploitation of animals. And it's very also rooted in anti-indigeneity, meaning that those who don't even have proximity to these grocery stores or proximity for certain resources in their geographic locations have to consume meat in a way that practices their cultural, religious, spiritual practices that they've been tending the land, they've been um, having regenerative relationships with the land. And so white veganism itself denies the effects of colonialism and does not really want to address white supremacy. And so um, for people just trying to understand it, it's something that is also perpetuated many vegan activists that are on platforms that continuously use dangerous rhetoric that fuels others that are rooted in anti-Semitic comments or slash um, support people who have been actively engaging with other white supremacists in the movement that have been found to be arrested um, in, the, in the social justice spaces for trying to inflict violence on black and brown bodies. Wow, I have to like take a breath. That was incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that veganism also in the environmental space can act as a bit of a gatekeeper when you say if you're not a vegan, 
then you're not a good environmentalist. And that kind of gatekeeping mentality continuing to perpetuate in other agencies of what it means to be a good environmentalist. So can I can I ask you a personal question? When you decided to convert to a more plant-based lifestyle, what did that look like for you and, and what was the motivation? Yeah, I think for me, I realized that even after asking so many questions with fellow vegans when I was a meat eater, is that I realized like, I think I'm making excuses just for myself at this point, even though I finally realized the interconnection between industrial agriculture and environmental racism. I understand the mass slaughtering of animals, the oppression towards undocumented farm workers that have to work um, underpaid wages. And so for me, I realized like, you know, this is a system or a, a corporation, you can say, like, especially being myself a consumer, that I no longer want to actively support. And so for me, it was just easy to disengage in this industry because the first thing I did is never really ate red meat. So I cut that off my diet and also never really ate fish growing up, maybe a few times. And so, um, you know, I think I ate chicken for a few weeks and, you know, I was challenged, reduce your consumption of meat, of meat. So I reduced my consumption of eating poultry by minus one every other week. So I'd have two weeks and then go less. And then eventually, you know, took it small steps and went vegetarian first uh, to make it more accessible for me. Um, but at the time I was a very college student, so I was always stressed and I was always trying to make excuses, but I think that I held myself accountable during that time, uh, knowing that I really wanted to do this. And it was for ethics, environmental and health benefits for myself. I think that too, what really helped me go vegan is I got food poisoning that um, the week before I went vegan even though I had promised myself that week that I would go vegan, even though I accidentally ate cheese. So after I got food poisoning, I was like, absolutely no more. Like I'm done with dairy products. I think it was a sign for the universe to uh, hold me accountable on that end for myself. And that I was like, okay, I'm going vegan. This is, this is enough. I'm done with dairy. Like, I don't care about the cheese. I will get something else that tastes like vegan cheese. I don't ever care anymore. And that was really uh, my journey to go vegan. Oh, that's so funny. It does kind of sound like a sign from the universe to push you into a more vegan lifestyle. And I feel like you've really created an identity for yourself online with your platform around this intersectionalism of everything that you discuss. Even the username queer brown vegan is so telling of everything that you stand for. And I just, I love that you are so open and upfront with your beliefs. And I don't think that you sugarcoat a whole lot, which is one of my favorite things about you. You just tell it how it is and you're an educator at the end of the day. So speaking of being an educator, let's talk about your upcoming book. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, um, the upcoming book I'm really excited to release is this a climate illustration book that kind of defines some of more of the terminology that were explored on my Instagram page, but it actually has some more visual imagery and additional text to it and kind of really explores those topics. And this is kind of, uh, you know, a pocket travel book for anyone just trying to like read with their children or even kids or teenagers or even college students just wanting to learn more about these terminologies. And I think that visual imagery really adds that personifying effect for people to relate to these imagery because they're very inclusive of one's identity, body, ability, um, you know, access to food and things like that. So this is something that has been working since April. So really suggest anyone that is looking out 
to head over to my website in the upcoming months. And I also have a free uh, PDF book right now that I did with another collaboration that's a mini series for anyone just wanting to download and share it with their friends. It's free download. You don't need to do anything uh, to sign up for it. You can click on the link there. Well, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'd also love to talk a little bit about your book and these collaborations that have come up for you in the last year or so. You have, like I said, a really incredible platform. And I've told you personally just how much I admire everything you do and how you stand up for yourself and find sponsors and partnerships that really make sense for your platform. So switching gears yet again, I would love to hear a little bit about your establishment as a content creator in this niche, because there's never been a more important time to be an intersectional environmentalist, to be an environmental educator, to speak up actively against racism. So talk to me a little bit about this space for yourself online that you've really cultivated and and how you've been able to do it. Yeah, I think for myself is the fact that I just believed in the work I wanted to do without having to think about expansive amount of growth of followings. I, I think for me, I was in a, sp- in a space mentally where I was mentally prepared to have active discussions, active places for me to unlearn. And I realized that the people that are generally in power are very glorified in social media are generally white folks. And so even though they aren't going to talk about it, and that's for a different discussion for them, I realized for me, I want to talk about it because I don't think I could never talk about racial, social, and environmental injustices because they are all interconnected to who I am and the experiences I've dealt with. And so I think that's really personal for me, especially for other BIPOC who are entering the environmental field that don't really have forms of mentors or support or people to look up to, that I wanted to at least provide that for other people to be like, well, you know, maybe you don't see yourself in the environmental movement or see people in your classes that look like you, but there are so many BIPOC that are doing this type of work. I think for me, when establishing partnerships and just my work ethics is the fact that I didn't want to be a platform in the sense of like, I didn't want to be a nobody where, you know, I'm just controlling this page with education, but rather humanize myself to be like, this is who I am. I am the educator. I'm a creator. But I also realized that the power of education is in demand, the power of sustainability a lot of people are very interested in these types of conversations. And so I think that it was important for me to ensure that when I work with organizations, especially NGOs, that they really align to environmentalism, that they really understand the issues with food insecurity, environmental justice, all of these interconnected terms. And I think that, you know, my community, I've always been transparent is that, yes, I do take sponsorships. At the end of the day, I, you know, generally 50% of the time I'm saying no to a lot of companies, but at the same time too, I need to fund myself. I need to think about financial stability for my parents that don't have access to intergenerational wealth. And that's fine if anyone's parents do. I think that's great. But I think for me, you know, I have to actively think about these things because as someone who grew up low income, not really access to a lot of funds, I have to think about my loved ones, my family. And if no one can really find me an organization that's fully BIPOC that can pay me a high salary, then I can't really uh, you know, create this. And this doesn't really exist in any environmental space. And so as a content creator, I took it upon myself to also empower other BIPOC creators to take accountability in their work and to really recognize and honor their work rather than um, taking the time to honor and glorify others that maybe are continuously making thousands of dollars but yourself, you're not making anything, even though you've been doing this work for years. And so I tell people that not to monetize, but rather to understand and pay your worth, because that's what's something that this is the job at the end of the day. And this is something that is important for anyone's human being to live in this world. Yeah, I think 
that is a message that I've really taken to heart. And I've told you this, like just one-on-one, I appreciate that so much because I think that especially when you do work that you're passionate about and work that you feel is so deeply rooted in justice, there is this pressure that you're just doing good work and perhaps you shouldn't be paid because this is just the right thing to do. And being able to kind of divide that moral obligation from saying, I also need to live and I need to be able to put a price on my time and energy and the resources. And it's not so much about creating one Instagram post, but it's everything else that I bring that allowed me to be enough of an expert to educate people on this. So I I really admire what you do. And I think that there is a much larger conversation happening now around the value of content creators and the value of paying BIPOC folk for the contributions that they make and how absolutely necessary that is. And I think a lot about a conversation I had with Wawa Gatheru, familiar with Wawa, Wawa, but I, I I love her. But she was telling me once that she was an intern at at a large organization and as the one BIPOC folk on their intern committee she kind of got I don't want to use the word swindled and I don't want to tell her story incorrectly but she kind of was doing this EJ work for the larger corporation that she didn't realize was not intern level work it should have been done by a consultant or an outside company coming in and restructuring these systematic racism issues that they had within their corporation. So I think about that story a lot because I'm like, why are we not valuing the young people in this conversation? Why are we not putting a price on the education that comes from historic oppression? I just, I think that there's, there's a lot of conversations around like value and money that need to be had right now. Yeah, definitely. And I think that as a society, we normalize people doing things for free. And this is why we've seen so much cheap costs here in the West of certain products to buy, clothes to buy, as you mentioned in different conversations, that it's been artificially suppressed. And so that means that our own work is already suppressed at a lower level because we're already ingrained by society that we shouldn't really be charging for our work, that we're doing greater good for the planet Meanwhile, others that are generally focused influencers that are generally white and have so much proximity to wealth, it's not really a second question for them. It's more like, I do deserve it. And so I think for many BIPOCs, it's almost as if we need to like doubt ourselves to be like, oh, should I get paid? Like, is this something ethical for myself to do? And I think that stems from internal shame of our the way our parents grew up of like, don't ask for money, like be grateful that they even talked about you or mentioned to you or given you something. And that's something that I'm trying to unlearn because I realize that if I don't normalize these conversations and other creators won't get paid and the brands will continue to expect that we are worth zero dollars. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to ask when you mentioned that you actively look for brands that are aligned with your values, how do you vet those partnerships and what kind of things do you check for on that brand level? Yeah, I think for me, it generally with environmental NGOs, of course, that I understand not all of them are diverse and also all have their own issues. But I think that if they're allowing me to have creative ability to do the work that I want to do without having so much creative control over it, that means to me that it's about my creation, that it's about what they believe in the work I do and that they don't need to doubt me. I think that when brands are like, you have to do this, we want you to do this, and it seems very scripted, very performative, it almost seems as if they're just using me as a doll or as a token to be like, look, we have him on the campaign, like we're great people. And so I think that 
if I'm not having the creative ability to do that. And two, if a corporation has been willing to address a lot of injustices in their own platforms, that's a big sign for me that they're wanting to create change. It's not to say that they're completely perfect because no one's perfect. I understand that. But I think that things like that when it comes to resources and fair wages and things like that, I do look into it. And while I've not always, you know, been aligned with certain partnerships or some people haven't been aligned with me working with certain brands, I do think that it's important to note that, you know, my contribution for this corporation doesn't really reflect my whole values. And at the end of the day, um, there are much more worse things happening in this world and society that people contribute to. And I think, again, like the form of spectrum of capitalism and oppression, like we all do it too actively. And it's up to me to really rethink the ways, but also ensure that I'm being paid equitably and I'm able to afford rent because I can't create content if I don't have access to a home, if I don't have access to water, food, electricity. Um, And these are things that should be a human right, but unfortunately our, our society does not operate that way. Thank you so much for that. I think this concept of content creation needing to literally sustain your life for some reason is not nearly as common a conversation as it should be. And like we were mentioning, a lot of content creators do have that proximity to wealth that they don't necessarily always have to question themselves when they're asking for monetary support to the work that they're doing. And when we talk about basic human rights, that also just reminds me a lot of the Green New Deal. I mean, I I would love to just like pick your brain a little bit about that and how you feel about these social issues and, you know, hopeful resolutions, I suppose, to injustices within our societies that are being tied to climate action plans. So let's talk about the Green New Deal and like social injustices being tied to environmental work. Yeah, I think with the Green New Deal, although it's been edited, I think multiple times at this point, I, you know, to be honest, I didn't read all the, you know, it's a lot of pages, actually. It's a really Oh, long. no, me neither. Yeah, I did not read the whole thing. And it has been edited. I feel like it, it almost stands for, I, I don't even know if it's so much about the actual policies anymore, but just like a general movement around the Green New Deal, I think is really inspiring. Yeah, I think that it provides a platform for environmental justice. And I think that environmental justice advocates for so long have been talking about this for decades, but modern environmentalism has not really recognized it as an issue. And so when people talk about, well, what does the environment and social injustice mean to me? I think that it's important to realize that when communities that have been disenfranchised and been marginalized for a historical amount of years, that really lowers the quality of life, lowers the quality of education for that one being lower, lowers the quality of access to proximity to continue to grow and excel in your own career. And I think that the Green New Deal is a platform to provide people that more information, but to also bridge the gap between economic inequalities um, and social inequalities and racial inequalities to understand the importance that we can build a more sustainable infrastructure that involves a community that does not involve greedy developers, that does not provide anti-homelessness rhetoric and perpetuated of laws um, to ensure that we have a better just society. Because I think that one thing that many people can agree on is that rents are, cre- are increasing everywhere, and, but it's not reflecting within our own wages. And that's something that a lot of people are very um, understanding about that we can't continue to afford rising increases of rent 
Meanwhile, our jobs are not increasing the wage salary. And so with the Green New Deal, it opens those opportunities for those corporations or industries um, to hire those who may not have the, had the opportunities to kind of uh, transition into a more sustainable job or sustainable career, whether they come from the coal fossil fuel industry that have had to work, um, you know, the frontline workers that have had to been exposed to all of these harmful chemicals. And so I, I think that's something that we all want for ourselves is the just society and the justice for life itself, right? For all sentiment beings, because I think that a lot of people see it as this far left agenda, but rather it's just ensuring that no other low income BIPOC communities are continuously being punished by the systems that have extracted. Meanwhile, these people who have had privilege and access to not live in these communities are able to really uh, understand these injustices. I appreciate that you brought up the concept of wages and rising rents. And I feel like I've seen a lot of conversation, especially this week in particular, around what it means to raise the minimum wage and why are people arguing about $15 an hour? If How does it hurt a larger corporation to truly be paying people fairly and be equating the value of work to you know what it should more reasonably be and $15 an hour isn't enough. And anyway, so I think that there's a lot of conversation around fair wages that needs to be like further unpacked. But I also think that this concept around tying social justice issues to environmental issues is just, I mean, I feel like it's so basic. I feel like I don't even want to explain it sometimes because I'm like, why do you not see it the way that I see it? But that's also a very privileged way to think that everyone should be as, you know, as aware of these injustices as I think that I am, you know? My last question for you is, I'm sure you come across plenty of people in your line of work that don't immediately agree with you or do not immediately see the rhetoric behind your conversations as valid for whatever reason. So how do you start to dismantle those barriers with people who do not always immediately assume that the work that you do or the philosophies that you're perpetuating are are valid? I think there's a difference between constructive criticism and just plain hate. And I think that with the plain hate comments of like, this is so ridiculous, like you're making so much controversial claims. I'm seen as controversial for some people. Just recently, someone made a post about me um, using my photo and like made all this description about um, how like horrible and a really, I'm not a really right vegan in this movement. So I think it's important that when we distill this information that we do try to provide as much scientific and um, historical information, but also, understanding that his, history itself is also erased many BIPOC historical events. And so the thing I always say is like, just because you didn't read in your book doesn't mean it existed because the book itself was also biased. But I do think that a lot of people that have come with constructive criticism have often, we've often met in the middle ground where, you know, I don't really personally agree with you on that point, However, I think collectively we do agree in the idea that certain industries are not great for society. And some people, um, you know, take that as a way of like we're learning, I guess. But I think that um, dealing with so much types of personalities in my community now, it's often I have to realize that I've had to draw a really strong boundary of those just trying to, um, you know, what you would say, just like comment things that don't really make sense. And so for me, it's an instant block because at this point, 
I don't have that much mental energy to really expand to someone that is hiding behind a fake profile account and it's private. Um, I do have energy for someone who is addressing these things. Like I looked at this article and it said this, like, what are your thoughts? And so if it's an oppositional view with an article, that's something that I'm very open to talk about. But I think too that I tell people is that not everyone is always going to be right. Not everyone's always going to be perfect. And it takes a lot of anyone that does a brand is that you have, if you're going to be talking about these topics that are very controversial or sometimes touchy for certain people is that they're, you're going to get a multitude of perspectives. And so for those who don't really talk about these injustices and just talk about their, um, you know, solely on their lifestyle and what they're doing, don't really have to always mention race or class and things like this. Um, it's often easier for them to opt out of these conversations. And so I think that it is our duty to actively challenge ourselves to unlearn, but also stand your ground when you're like, well, this is what I think. And not to be like, you're not going to change your mind. But I think that when people put out their information thoughts, like you have to stand your ground. And I think I do have to stand behind a lot of my words that I've said, because that's something that is really deep to me. Um, but I don't, I don't expect people to be like, if you don't understand this, you're canceled. It's more about like, you can agree or disagree. If you disagree, then disengage. But if you agree, then that's great too. You know, I'm not here to tell people that you're wrong or right, but I'm here to tell people that we need to disengage from a lot of problematic behaviors that a lot of people have perpetuated and indirectly have created harm. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I think this concept of leading with compassion, but not wavering in your beliefs is really, really admirable. One of my biggest faults, I think, as an environmentalist or as an environmental professional is probably that I take it too personally, that I assume because someone doesn't want to participate in sustainability or if someone shares to me that they don't agree with, you know, bundling social issues and environmental issues, I assume it's an attack on me. And it quite frankly never is. It's a value system. It's a system of what their beliefs are and how they grew up and whatever else it may be. So I think your, your messaging around like just standing your ground with compassion is really really admirable thank you so much yeah no of course and yeah i tell people to always ensure that at the end of the day social media is just social media and the people who matter will be there the people who don't will continue to spread rhetoric but at the same time it's good publicity for you because people know more of your name (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true i like that a lot all publicity is good publicity i guess that's what they say so with that, I think that's an excellent place to leave the audience. Isaiah, thank you so much for sharing your story and just kind of bebopping around all of these topics. I feel like we covered so much ground. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much again for having me. It was such an honor. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Isaiah Hernandez of Queer Brown Vegan. He is, like I mentioned, someone I look up to so, so much, someone I admire, someone I love to chat with, and I'm so thrilled that he joined us today for the show, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this episode. I know we covered a lot of ground, but I feel like we were able to unpack some pretty heavy topics in a short amount of time so eloquently, so tactfully. And I really enjoyed the episode. I loved listening to it back the second time also. So please go ahead and let me know what you think of it. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Give me your feedback. Send it to a friend. You can follow along on Spotify. And I can't wait to be in touch with you soon. Don't forget we have our book club episode coming up in a couple of weeks. We are reading Deluxe by Dana Thomas, and we're reading along with Megan McSherry of Activism. So I'm thrilled about that. 
And like I said, I'm looking forward to creating different kinds of content. I want to serve you more. I want to do more work in the space and I want to know your thoughts. So if you have any feedback, any thoughts on what kind of content you would be most inclined to consume, what kind of environmental education you want in the coming months, please let me know and get in touch with me on social or via email. All those links are in the show notes. So thanks again so much for tuning in. It's been a treat and I will talk to you very soon. Bye. Bye.